All right. And please remain standing for a moment and read with me the text out of Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30, we'll be reading the whole chapter. Verse 1. The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance. This man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eucal, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom, nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven, or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal, and profane the name of my God. Do not malign a servant to his master, lest he curse you, and you be found guilty. There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh how lofty, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) oh how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords, and whose fangs are like knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, and the needy from among men. The leech has two daughters, give and give. There are three things that are never satisfied, four never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, and the fire never says enough. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pluck it, will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, yes, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. For three things the earth is perturbed. Yes, for four it cannot bear up. For a servant when he reigns, a fool when he is filled with food, a hateful or hated woman when she is married, and a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps with his hands, and it is in king's palaces. There are three things which are majestic in pace, yes, four, which are stately in walk. A lion, which is mighty among beasts and does not turn away from any. A greyhound, a male goat also, and a king whose troops are with him. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. For as the churning of milk produces butter, and wringing the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. You may be seated. So last time we looked at 
the introduction, which was verses 1 through 9. The first six verses are an epistemological confession of Igor. He, he confesses that he knows through the word of God. Um, and he also confesses an ignorance of that knowledge apart from that. So we had in verse 1, we spent a lot of time there because it's a difficult verse. And so I, I gave you the translation that I had at the bottom there. So page 1 on point 3, the words of the gatherer which is Solomon, son of the keeper, which is David, the oracle, in other words, a burden that came from the Lord, a confession of the strong man. So in other words, here's what a strong man says. And the idea is, if you're a real king, if you're a real ruler, if you're a real strong man, you confess the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you've probably seen the bumper sticker, you know, real men love Jesus or something to that effect. And basically, that's what this is saying. Right? The Gabor, the... The great man, he confesses God with us, God with us, and consumed. Right. So this is a confession of Jesus. This is a confession of Emmanuel. Now, verses 2 and 3 are about how I am more like a beast than a man and do not have the understanding of a man. So I don't have the understanding that a man should have. This is true apart from divine revelation. So what we have is this idea of the natural condition and the knowledge of the Holy One and the knowledge of manhood, the double knowledge, right? The knowledge of God and the knowledge of self are the things that are obtained through the divine revelation. And so then there's this question about how do we get this divine revelation? Do we go up? Does somebody come down? You know, do we have the ability to make this happen? Can we force God to give us a revelation? I mean, who has the power to gather up the winds in his fists? Who has the power to bound the waters so they don't go beyond their boundaries? Who has the ability to establish the earth that it might be relied upon and be settled? What's his name? And again, curious in the Old Testament, what is his son's name? If you know. And so the idea here is we know because of divine propositional revelation, a word from heaven, words from heaven. Now, every word of God is pure. He is a shield. Verse 5, page 2. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. Do not add to His words lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. Right. So here we have the purity and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And we have the fact that we can rely upon the Word to provide for us. We have the Gospel that gives to us a saving message so that we can, by faith alone, believe in the Messiah and have a confidence that we will not be left to destruction. And then there's also this idea of not making up doctrine. And we know that we know the path we should go from what God has revealed. Then there's this prayer. And so we move from an epistemological consideration to the existential prayers of Agur in verses 7 to 9. And so he asks twice for two things. And those things are to remove lies and liars from him. Right, so self-deception, help him to not be self-deceived, help him to not deceive others, help him to not be around deceivers, help him to not hear deception. And then to keep him from excess and poverty. And we talked about the idea there that the way you avoid excess is by taking everything the Lord gives you and putting it to good work. And so when you do that, and you give, and you're generous, and you tithe, and you invest, and you bless, no matter how much the Lord gives you, it's not excess. The danger is when you just hoard and pile up, and you say, ah, good, my barns are full, I'm going to rest and have leisure. What you do is you take everything the Lord has given to you, and every piece of property, every dollar, every fraction of a Bitcoin, every marginal share that you get in whatever corporation, those things are all little pieces of dominion that the Lord Jesus Christ has said, I own this and you are going to manage it. So you get a promotion whenever he gives you more resources. Now, verse 10 starts the main body of this chapter. Remember, this is collection 6. And so in collection 6, which is just this chapter, right? these are Agur's words. He's the son of Jacob. And so we get into these seven numerical sayings of Agur. 
And so, seven numerical sayings, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of seven as a sign of completeness. And so these would sort of symbolize the idea of a completeness of thought about these sort of lists. There's this idea of, of the, the numbering of things. And these lists tend to be three or four. Okay? And that kind of points to the fact that they're not complete. And the idea there would be that you need to be considering things. You need to be looking over things. That There's this continual search for wisdom, which is why he starts with saying, I do not have the understanding of a man. The knowledge of the Holy One. This idea of the need to continually pursue the growth in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. That you should, until your dying breath, be seeking out the knowledge of God to grow in it. And then from there, knowing that we will enter into eternity and we will grow in the knowledge of God forever. That will not stop. It will not cease. The good life is to know God and to know His law and to apply it. Now, chapter 30, verse 10. The, I have laid out there at the bottom of page 2 for you. There's an organizing of these. We're going to get through the first set of the numerical sayings today. So these numerical sayings, um, when we get through verse 16, we've basically gotten through three of these, and there's an introductory line. So there's a set about social order, um, and then the second set is also about social order, but that's sort of vague, so I've tried to give it a little bit more detail. So go to page three. The first group is about renouncing covetousness, okay, because... Covetousness is disruptive to the social order. You betray people. You don't have loyalty to people. That's the idea. So, um, again, that uh, other outline comes from Bruce Waltke. Um, so what I find often with his outlines is he'll, they're excellent. He does an excellent job. And at the same time, oftentimes he uses broader categories than I think are necessary. And so uh, typically my desire is to show you um, things a little more Precisely, so I'm typically taking a lot of generics from him and helping to sharpen them into more specific. And so this this sort of social disorder here is the issue of covetousness, and it has an interesting introduction. Look at verse 10: Do not malign a servant to his master, lest he curse you, and you be found guilty. Now, the word for Malign is really just slander. Okay, so it's just, it's just slandering. Don't don't wrongly accuse somebody of something. And the type of person it mentions is a servant. The word is a bed, which can be translated slave, servant, advisor, minister, official. You know, you, you look at the section we just completed through chapter twenty-nine, which was that middle management chunk, collection five of Proverbs. And here we've gotten into collection six, and we're looking at sort of the king's chapters. Um, and so. This idea of, of cursing a servant, you can think of a servant at any level. It's an intentional ambiguity. And that works particularly well with Proverbs, right? Because you think about somebody who is at any level of service, from the lowest to the highest. Do not slander that person to their master. And the word of master there, Adon, can be used to refer to a household master, a king, or God. And so there's this idea of that. Now, how could you slander somebody to God? By swearing falsely. By swearing falsely. You bear false testimony, and you call upon God in that. You are slandering that person to God. And the good thing about God is he's not very easily lied to with effect. Because he knows everything, and he knows when you're lying. It don't work. So... That's an interesting thing here that follows. Lest he curse you and you be found guilty. Who would find you guilty of the slander? God would. And so if the person curses you and it's a just curse, it's not going to bounce off. So you slander somebody to their superior and they curse you. Now whether it's righteous cursing or not on that part, the threat is the curse might land. Does that terrify you? 
about slander? Now, where does, where does slander come from? Slander comes from covetousness. We don't like the person's station. We don't like the person's good name. We don't like that the person is getting something we don't want them to get. We want them to get bad things, right? It's covetousness. It's covetousness. That is the source of slander. And so this introduction is about that issue of covetousness, but it also touches on what we're going to see in the second section. And the second section is about renouncing rebellion. Where does rebellion come from? A covetousness about authority and not valuing lawful authority. And so this idea of slander affects covetousness in terms of property, but it also affects covetousness in terms of station. And so the social order in terms of property rights and station are both affected here. So this idea of slander. We are tempted to slander our opponents in the political realm. And that's in order to get power from them, take away station, get it for ourselves. We are tempted to slander other people who we are in competition with in terms of trying to get station inside of a business to get you know, the ability to get the promotion versus the other guy. And there are a number of temptations there. So this idea of slander and false witness bearing, and especially taking the name of God in vain, are all pointed to there. Do not malign a servant to his master, lest he cursed you and you'd be found guilty. Now, a justified curse can bring real curse. We, uh, we view that as superstitious. We like, don't really care about these things. We think of cursing, and we hear the word cursing, and we just think, like, oh, when you, talk, when you use foul language. No. Cursing is a very specific thing. Cursing is when you call imprecation down on someone. So if you were to call for damnation on a person, you say, you know, God, and you say the word damn, right? And what you're doing is you're calling for condemnation. That's the root. The word damn is the word for the idea of curse. You're calling the curse of God onto something. We think of that as a minor swear word. We go, oh, the S word and the F word, these are real words. These are words that get you a PG-13 or an R rating if you say them too many times. But you drop down a word about curse, or even put God's name in front of it, no, not a big deal. And that's a bigger deal. It's a bigger deal. God's name is a bigger deal than you talking about scatological things. It doesn't matter in comparison. A little foulness and lewdness are not nearly as big of a deal as taking God's name and running it through the muck. God's name. The holiest name. And when we call upon God's works in a way that is frivolous or silly, like his damnation. That is not a thing to be joked about. The damnation of God, the curse of God, is a horrifying thing. The wrath of God. So if you slander a person and they call damnation on you, there's the danger of the curse of God Hitting. Now, I'm not talking about the possibility of losing your salvation. All of us deserve to go to hell. But for believers, what I'm saying is, there is a danger that there's temporal judgment that comes when someone calls a curse on you, and it's just. So, we think about taking oaths, swearing in the name of God, the, the blessing and cursing that exists there. When somebody calls down curse, why was it such a fearsome thing in the book of Numbers that Balaam was going to come and pronounce curses on the people of Israel? And why was it such a thing to be rejoiced over when God took his mouth and caused it to pronounce blessing instead? Blessings are really powerful too. We do not value the pronouncement of blessing as we ought. It is a joy for me that every day I get to raise my hands over my family and bless them. It's a joy for me that every week I get to raise my hands over you in blessing. 
That's a powerful and real thing. It's a powerful and real thing. We should be more concerned about curses than we are. We should pray for God to protect us from curses and for God to protect us from demons. We think we are so smart because we can make subatomic particles collide into each other. We think we're so great because we have refrigerators. We think we're amazing because of the internal combustion engine. There are still curses. There are still demons. And there is a God in heaven. And so we ought not to be proud and to think that because we have technology that these things do not matter. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. It would be difficult to find a more dangerous slander than to slander a person to their superior. A superior, that close superior over them. Right? You slander a wife to her husband. You slander a child to their parent. You slander a servant to their employer. You, you slander a citizen to their magistrate, a congregant to their pastor. Right? When you do that, you are destroying, harming, damaging covenant relationships that are close and important where there are lines of responsibility. So it is a very important thing to be careful to not slander people in general, but also to not slander people in the places where it can cause them the most harm. Right? It is a more grievous sin to slander in a way that's harmful than to slander in a way that causes trinkets of damage. And so when we are going to do something, if we are tempted to sin, the, re- the, the relatively large amount of damage that a particular sin could cause should be another callback for us help us to think, do not do this thing. Do not cause this harm. Do not cause the damage to this brother that it could cause. So we move in from the introduction to the first saying. The first saying is about the greedy generation. I have highlighted the word a generation for you so you can see how clearly this is the structure. <laughs> it's pretty obvious looking at the hand up. There's a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. Is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords, and whose fangs are like knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, and the needy from among men. So if this didn't remind you of our own generation, I don't think you're looking around. We live in a generation that not only mocks parental authority in general, but it also mocks all of the blessings and heritage that we have received. The the Christian heritage, the Protestant heritage of our country, the institutions that are built up because of the law order revealed in God's word that we have. I mean, so much of our constitution and so much of our law order, so much of the procedural justice that we have, so much of the separation of powers, so much of the decentralization and the the federated methodology of having divided governments, not just by the branches, but also by having layers. The idea of the sovereignty of states that are bound together in a covenanted union. All of these things are Calvinist civil doctrine. These things and the tearing away of them, the chipping away of them, the destruction of them. The universities were almost all founded by Christians. And instead of maintaining the Christian heritage and the purpose of spreading Christianity in them, the Frankfurt School of the Socialists, the long march through the institutions, the taking over of it, the, the presenting of a, of a sort of social justice method that has to do with the tearing down of every power structure and the calling out of everything as being about white patriarchal supremacy as opposed to saying, you know, perhaps, just perhaps, Western civilization with the marriage order is something coming from the Bible, that has allowed for women to be in the best place that they have ever been in the history of the world. Perhaps, just perhaps, the law order of marriage and not allowing for no cause, no fault divorce, perhaps, just maybe, that protects women. 
and children and requires justice in the land and protects righteous men from being hurt by unrighteous women as well. We mock, we curse our forefathers and we do not bless our mothers. We are called, you know, Proverbs 31 talks about the blessing of the children on the Proverbs 31 woman and the praises of the husband. One of the reasons women are dissatisfied often is because men do not take seriously the good work that they perform. And so it is our duty to honor our mothers, to honor our wives, to honor our daughters, to acknowledge their sacrifices, to give them good and worthy work, to manage them well, to care for them well. And it is our duty to honor fathers. You all know this. This is a trope in conservative circles at this point in time. What piece of art takes a man who's a father and husband and presents him as competent and wise and powerful and good? What piece of art says, ah, yes, protect your daughters. Don't just let them do whatever they want. Ah, yes, discipline your sons. Don't just let them do whatever you want. Ah, yes, lead your wife. Don't let her emotions control the house. Right? What piece of art praises that to the skies? None, but the word of God does. And so we should resist the culture at that point. We laugh at it. These fools don't know how to build a household. They're tearing themselves down. They're a snake eating its own tail. They can't build anything. All they can do is destroy. The Lord Jesus Christ sits in heaven and he laughs. He's having them build vineyards that they won't enjoy and cities that they won't inhabit. They pile up silver for the righteous. Their work is for us. Don't fret. There's a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. We are surrounded by that. There's a generation that is pure in its own eyes and yet is not, is not washed from its filthiness. Right? This, this self-righteousness. Right? The, the way the culture talks about Christianity and the church. Right? It's full of hypocrites. Yeah, not like the world. Full of hypocrites. Not like woke corporations. It's full of hypocrites. What, what organization are you aware of that's not? But the church is founded on the principle that we are all guilty and we need the word from heaven to tell us about forgiveness. We don't have sins that are incapable of being paid for by Christ. And so what we have is an acknowledgement of our own impurity. Psalm 51 would provide for us a good way of thinking about the absence of cleanness in ourselves and the need to be washed. And so... The law of God needs to be propounded. This generation does not think it is pure. Sorry, does think it's pure. Does not think it needs to be washed. And does not think it's filthy. And we participate in helping them in their delusion when we do not propound the law of God. We propound the law of God. We put it forward. We preach it. We speak it. We apply it. And as we do those things... There is a way in which we are putting a mirror in front of their faces and saying, look at yourself, you're dirty. Look at yourself, you're filthy. You need to be made pure. There's a generation. Oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. You know, social media is full of people talking about how to save the world and their lives are a mess. Their lives are a mess. It's so obvious that their lives are a mess that Jordan Peterson became famous by telling them to clean their rooms. That idea that they are looking off to lofty things in arrogance and will not look at themselves. They won't look down to examine themselves. They won't look in the mirror to see their own filth. There's this looking off to lofty things, this thinking about the grand things. When society collapses, then my ideology will reign. Right? There's this... There's this way in which there's this going out and the ignoring of what needs to be done. Get your own life in order. Govern yourself well. Rule your house well. Hire servants. Get things done. Get more resources. Be a church officer. Be a local civil magistrate. The gradual process from more local to less local, that is how you are not arrogant. Right? We, so often we sound like you know, the 11-year-old that wants to run for president. Okay? Well, how about this? Instead, why don't we be the 11-year-old that wants to learn to be a man so we can work 
and do things. And then, when we're men and we do things, let's build up and be resources, have resources, be resourceful, help other, other people, have something to give, be able to govern well, wash our wives in the word, raise up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, get a servant and rule them well. This is a process. This is a process. And so that government from smaller to larger, seek church office. Seek local civil office. That's the order. That is how we avoid thinking of things that are too great for us. That is how we avoid being lofty and arrogant. There's a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. You know, so often the language of helping the poor is used to oppress them. Something I run into all the time is regulations that I have to figure out how to get around in business that basically are designed to make it so that poor people can't do business. Okay? So licensure processes are a joke. Regulatory rules and investigations by regulatory agencies are a joke. They do not know what you are doing. They do not care. They don't have time to figure it out. These are things that scare people from doing business. These are things that take people who are inexperienced and make them afraid. This is the kind of stuff that rather than figuring out how to serve people and do well and to make a profit from honest labor, make it so you spend time putting together the nonprofit and figuring out the tax licensures and getting all the licenses and you're a year in you haven't made any money. How many of you have like partially started a business and then given up because of those things? These things that are meant to that are supposedly designed for the protection of the little guy make it easier for the big guy to oppress. Regulation systems that are designed to make it so that there's limits on who can compete. And when you have things like the welfare state that makes it so that when you work, you don't get your check anymore. If you've got a man in the house, you don't get as much money. But these things are designed to keep the oppressed oppressed. They're designed to, keep, to bring curse on houses This talk about social justice and caring for the poor, it is either ignorance or intentional malice. And the ignorant ought not to govern, and malice should not be in the hearts of kings. This generation uses the language of compassion to chew up the poor, to keep them in poverty. And to prevent them from taking dominion, though the Lord God Almighty commissioned them to do it. There are many generations that have been like this on the earth. Throughout the history of the world before the coming of Christ, more and more every generation collapsed into that. Since the coming of Christ, there have been waves that crashed upon the beach and a rising tide as the church advances. Nations here and there have covenanted and seeing Christian law orders established. And we look now at the declining of the wave of Western civilization, and we fear as though the city of God is going away. America is not the city of God. The church are our people. Our people have existed unbroken from Adam till now. No generation of wickedness, no gates of hell, no strong towers of the enemy can break the advance of the church. And the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ will advance and remove these wicked generations and subdue them under his feet and ours because we are his body. And Psalm 47 says they will be subdued under our feet. So we look at this and there's a danger to the greedy generation and these are the people that must be opposed with power. A righteous use of power, wisdom opposed to wickedness. Rule in your domain. Do it well. Don't be lofty. Don't raise up your eyes and look off to future utopias. Build here. Build now. Do it well. Nurture the little things that are there in front of you. A saying two follows well after saying one. The leech has two daughters. Give and her beautiful sister give. Leeches are animals that only take life from others. 
in the horror genre, the vampire was created to represent this. This idea of the sucking off of life, the taking of strength. If a person will not be reciprocal or grateful, the person's a leech. I want you to examine yourself right now. When others bless you, do you seek to bless them back? When you receive blessing from the Lord, do you seek to use it for His glory? I'm not asking you if you try to earn your salvation. I'm asking you, knowing you've been saved, knowing you've received grace, are you advancing now in gratitude? Are you grateful? Even if you can't do anything else, are you grateful for the blessings the Lord has given? So often, I am such a wretch going, yeah, thank you, Lord, and could I have some more? Moving on without giving thanks. The singing of psalms, the, the praying thanks, the, the pronouncing the blessings that God has given to other people, the expressing it in grateful terms to encourage them. I am convicted by my failure to show gratitude at the level that I should. And so we should all be aware of this tendency. But the idea of not, you know, with, with God, God has infinite strength and so no leech can diminish him. With other people, we are all finite. We are all weak. We can be brought down by leeches. Reciprocity and gratitude. Outdoing each other and honoring each other. These are the things that help to give life to each other. To help us when we give to not be weary. If you want everyone to give you things and you're not serving others, then you need to identify yourself as a leech. And you need to repent by looking for ways to serve. I'm asking you to do that. Examine yourself. Write this down in your outline. What am I doing to serve? What am I doing to serve privately? What am I doing to serve in my household? What am I doing to serve in the church? Twenty thirty-five. being a leech is miserable. You know, oftentimes... You, feel, you can recognize that you're being a leech if you feel miserable. <laughs> when you feel miserable, you ask yourself, am I just expecting everybody to give me stuff right now? Because think of what? Just receiving things and not doing anything with it is miserable. Taking what we have been given and seeking to make good use of it and to bless others and to do well and to govern well is in... It's, it's, it's in Enthusiasm generating. It is energy creating. It is joy maximizing. Being a leech is miserable. Generosity rebounds by the blessing of God. You, you want more? Bless. Right, the, the prosperity gospel preachers will take this and, dis, and distort it. Right? Send me a check for $1,776 to commemorate our founding and you will receive whatever it's not mechanistic but in general the Lord brings blessing when you serve and bless other people the entire capitalist system the law order of private property is that mutual exchange of blessings I will give you this you give me that both people got a blessing lawful work honest work brings blessing and generosity where you give things away gives blessing and if you do it especially to those who have no capability of giving anything back to you, it gives an extra blessing. And so that power to bring blessing of service and helping others, it brings joy when done to the glory of God in faith. We talked a lot about mercy ministry this morning, so you know the criteria for doing that well. Now, Value is produced for yourself by producing value for others. That's, what, again, the, the free market system, the trade system, the private property order, the Eighth Commandment, don't steal, instead exchange things honestly to get other things. Right? You give your work to get money. You give money to get somebody else's product. Right? These are the things that you do. And so this idea of producing value by yourself by giving value to other people. If you want to start a business, you have to know what is the value proposition? What am I offering to other people that's valuable that they would exchange something valuable back? 
That's a good work. Capitalism is a good work. Building a business is a good work. You're selling things to people without lying. It's a good work. It's 37. Remove burdens from others. Free them. Take over work at the bottom of the ladder. Work your way up by showing skill and diligence and reliability. Going back to the generation that was before, the lofty eyes or whatever, you're looking around, you're like, I want something to do. I want to be able to serve, and so I'd like to be king. Let me serve you. And that's what everybody wants to, you know, the desire to come in and take over the pulpit, the desire to come in and to govern, the desire to come in and to have control of all the things. This is, this is the service that if somebody walks in and hasn't done anything else and they want to do those things, there's this danger of the idea of their eyes are lofty. You want to find something to do? Like, take the security post at the door. Help to sweep up the place. Help to deal with the administration of things that aren't going to be broadly seen. Help to deal with removing the recording obligations. Help to reduce the burdens of other men that are already doing work and let them move up the ladder. The ones that have been serving faithfully already look for opportunities to remove tasks from people and to take them over and to help them to be able to do more work. That process will give you joy, make you more skilled, build your reputation, build up your confidence, make it so that you bring honor to your own name and glory to the Lord, free up people who have been serving to do more. That is how, as opposed to give, give, what we say is, I'd like to give, I'd like to give, as opposed to the imperative, give to me. People want to serve by teaching, but until they show fruitfulness in other areas, they ought not to focus on teaching and should rather serve in other ways. Fruitfulness in other areas is a precondition for teaching and governing. Remember the, one of my favorite parables out of the Old Testament? The plants, the trees, there's the vine, the fig, and the olive. And they all produce useful things. They don't want to govern. And the bramble says, yes, I will absolutely be your king. And you know what else? You will hide under my shade, especially the cedars of Lebanon. And if they don't, I'll burn you all with fire. Right? That was the response. This bramble bush, the unproductive person, the desire to control the productive output of other people, the desire to use wrath to control, the unreasonableness of the demands, the fractiousness of their ego, right? all of that. So this idea looking for ways to be fruitful in service that are lower. Now, here's a quote from Bruce Waltke. The greed of the evil generation morphs into a second saying about greed. The parasitic horse leash has two organs, one to suck blood and the other to attach itself to its host. It is personified as a mother with two daughters who demand give, give. The saying warns against the danger of tolerating a parasite. The double-sucking leech symbolizes either an individual of inordinate lusts or a wicked person, like a thief or a welfare scammer, both of whom suck out the life and wealth of a society. The insatiable appetite of the parasite must be quickly eliminated. Otherwise, it multiplies and does ever more damage. You get more of what you subsidize, and you get less of what you penalize. It's one of the things that is being pointed out there. Leeches want to take things from other people's productivity through emotional attachments as friends, through covenant institutions and the abuse of them like households, churches, or the state. These are things to be aware of. Saying three. Here are four things that are insatiable. So you, you see the, the thematics here? We've got this idea of, of the slander out of covetousness. We've got the generation that's covetous and thinks so highly of itself. We've got the leech. And then we've got these four things that are never satisfied. So that's sort of the, you can see the unifying thematics of covetousness through those. Okay, so let's think now about this last part. The four things that are insatiable. There are three things that are never satisfied. Four never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, and the fire never says enough. So what we have, the structure here, 
You have a destructive force, a productive force, followed by a productive force, and then a destructive force, right? So you have the grave is destructive, the, the womb is productive, the earth is productive, and the fire is destructive. Does that make sense as, a, as an order for the poetics there? So the grave. We are saved from death, but death would take us and never give us back if it were not for Christ's victory over the grave. It would take us and it would never give us back. It would keep taking. It would just keep taking. Men would die. Tombs would be filled. It would just keep taking. When Christ returns, there will be a resurrection of the dead. And that resurrection will take from the grave every body. Every sea lost body will be raised from the seas. Everyone who has been burned to dust will be reformed into a whole body. The grave, death, is the last enemy that will be subdued by Christ. We are saved from death. The grave ever yearns to take life. It yearns to consume what the womb produces. And we move into the womb... We think about this. The barren womb. The womb is to produce life. The barren womb takes the seed of a husband and does not produce a child. It never says enough. It never says, fine, there's a baby. It never gives that life. It never gives that child. And so the productive force that's blunted, these are symbols of the curse. Every womb would be barren were it not for God's opening the womb and giving life. The womb ever yearns to produce life. So let me go to the earth. And the earth, when you think back to the creation order, there's the raising up of plants, of the green life, of those things that are to be food for all of the things that are living. The earth, what is it never satisfied with? It's never satisfied with water. What is water for? It's for giving life to the plants. Now, you can, you can give all the water you want to the earth and it's not going to have enough. You can pour it all there and you'll, you'll kill the plants that are mostly there and you just flood the zone and that's fine and eventually it will soak in and dry up and then the earth will say, where's the water? And everything dries up and it's dead. You can keep all the water away and there is not a yield. The continuous flow of water in a river the continual presence of it in a freshwater water body, and the coming of continuous rains or reliable rains. The earth takes it and it yields life, but it never says, this is enough. No more. You don't need to come back next Wednesday. We don't need next month. This is fine. We're done here. You paid in full. It never says enough. It is never satisfied. And so what we need is the continual process of the bringing of water for this giving of water to the earth. And by that continual coming of water, the order of the creation that God has made, that order makes it so that there is this ongoing yield. There's a yield that continues to come. Think about the complexity and beauty of it all. The coming of rains, the storing up of precipitation with, the, with snow on mountains that melts gradually to feed rivers, the, the presence of rivers and the way that they move and provide a continuous flow and availability of water, the way in which they are able to more and more give to us not only transportation, but, but life with the waters that we need at a regular basis. The ability of man to exercise dominion, to build dams, to control it. All of those things, and the idea of, of lakes themselves. The process of water is something that is emphasized in the beginning of Genesis. And the idea of having the waters that are above and the waters that are below we have this cycle. And you see this in Ecclesiastes as well. It talks about the cycle. And so we, we, pretend, we pretend like we're geniuses because in eighth grade, you know, science now, we tell our children about the water cycle as though it weren't explained from the beginning of creation by God. You know, but it's been revealed. It's been told to us. It's something that we experience that people have been able to farm based upon throughout their lives, throughout generations. The earth that is not satisfied with water never has enough. And what does it do? It produces vegetation, and when the water stops, what happens to the vegetation? It becomes kindling. 
So there's a creative force here and there's a destructive force. And because of the curse, what grows? Thorns and thistles. What we have is the earth that is not as productive as it should be and doesn't have the reliability of output as it should have. The womb, which isn't as productive as it should be, doesn't have the reliability of output as it should have. Those are because of curse. The productive things are harmed by the curse. And these destructive things, death and fire, they are out there and they destroy and they prevent progress. The gospel and the blessing of God overcome these things. We are told in the book of Isaiah that a day will come where he who dies at a hundred will be counted a child. Our work will be tested as by fire and the gold and silver and precious stones will not be destroyed by it. The destructive powers are not as powerful as the work of Christ as king to subdue the earth and to subdue our enemies and to subdue us to himself. These things are never satisfied. But there is a working to remove curse as the gospel advances. As we look at these things, and these are things that give us a sense of the weariness of life. And yet they also are things that we see overcome. The fires of judgment and the grave are conquered by Christ. The barren womb is displaced by the fact that he was born of a virgin. And he causes the barren woman to rejoice more than the woman who is not. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. These things overcome. We've completed now the first chunk here and looked at the first three sayings that are put forward as numerical sayings by Agur. Are there any comments, questions, or objections from the voting members or those with speaking rights?